This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? You're listening to episode 118 of Love That Album Podcast. So glad that you decided to uh, download and give this episode a listen. Now, originally, this episode was going to be a discussion of the XTC album English Settlement. Fear not, that is coming in a couple of weeks or so. But I had this opportunity to record an extra episode and I really couldn't knock it back. A week before the time of this recording, I had travelled up to the town of Wangaratta, which is about 250 kilometres north of Melbourne, down the Hume Highway on the way to Sydney, and I went with my wife Joanne, and we met up with our very good friends Paul and Ruth, and we decided to go to Wangaratta because every year they have a festival called the Wangaratta Festival of Jazz and Blues. It's been running for nearly 30 years or so, and every year I'd gone and said to myself, I really ought to go to that festival. And this is the first year I actually decided to stop tire kicking and went along to the festival, had a magnificent time. Now, I bought my tickets for the festival back in, I think, June of this year, planned this out a long way away and you know, got the accommodation and all that. But it was only maybe a month or two ago when I decided, well, maybe I should see if I can get some interviews with some of the musicians at the festival. And my first thoughts were this was extremely unlikely because, well, you know, a festival like that would attract, I guess, more of the big name media broadcasters. 
I never seriously thought that a little podcast like Love That Album would be given access to any of the great musicians who are playing at the festival, but I sold the organisers short. I had an email from a lovely lady called Diana Wolf. Hello, Diana, if you're out there listening to this. And they um, were more than happy to allow me access to the musicians at the festival. So after going through the program, I selected four musicians I decided I wanted to have a chat with, and a couple of them were long-time favourites of mine, and a couple of them were completely completely new to me, but all were absolutely wonderful, both as performers and as interview subjects. And basically, those interviews is what this episode of Love That Album is all about. I went out and bought myself a microphone. It's a Rode Video Mic Me microphone for any of those who might be interested. And basically, I just go and clip it onto my mobile phone and get the recording going. And the result is what you're going to hear. Now, I should make you aware in advance of listening to these interviews that a lot of it was recorded either outdoors or in rooms where there were a lot of other things going on. You hear musicians in the background performing or tuning up or workmen who were taking boxes across a room that was originally supposed to be reserved for media interviews and the like. So, you know, not always exactly the ideal circumstances, but on the other hand, you also sort of tend to get the feel of what it's like being at a festival and getting a musician on the side after they've performed. And maybe you'll get a little bit of the vibe of what the festival was all about. You don't have to be a fan of jazz or blues to appreciate what these interviews are going to be about. It's speaking with musicians who are just very, very passionate about their music writing, about their performance, about the development of their craft, and I think any music fan can appreciate something in these conversations. So who do I actually have on the show to speak to you? So let me go through them all. They're all Australian musicians. Some of them you may be familiar with if you're a local, but all are really, really fascinating speakers. So the first one is a blues drummer called Anthony Short, also known as Shorty, and I went to see him many, many years ago when he was performing in local blues trio Collard Greens and Gravy. Nowadays he's playing in a few ensembles but the one that was performing at Wangaretta Festival of Jazz and Blues were called Opelousas so we'll be talking a bit about that formation as well as a couple of the other acts that he's performing with nowadays. Then we'll be speaking with a guitarist called Alex Stewart. Now Alex originally comes out of the nation's capital Canberra. In the last 12, 13, 14 years or so he's been living in Paris, France And he's just gone and recorded in the last year or so an album called Aftermath. And there's a really fascinating story behind its creation. I don't want to give it away here. Just wait till the interview. But a really fascinating fellow. And it's all of a sudden, it's become one of my favorite albums of the year. And that may show up in my December albums of the year special who knows and following him we have an interview with another great guitarist called ben hauptman who's also an educator he's so dedicated to his craft as well as living in the uh, central coast in new south wales he travels every week to brisbane to go lecture at the jazz music institute up in brisbane so we talk a bit about his music and about the travails of being a, a teacher and uh, a working musician and all the wonderful people who he's playing with. The final interview that I have was not recorded at the Wangaratta Festival of Jazz and Blues. It was recorded here in Melbourne at the Victorian College of the Arts. But the man who I spoke with, Mr. David Jones, was a very key part of the 
this year's festival. We just couldn't arrange a suitable time for both of us at the weekend, so we decided that we'd catch up in the week following the festival. So I went down to meet him at his office at the Victorian College of the Arts, where he is, I'm not sure if he's actually a, the head of percussion, or he's certainly a lecturer in percussion and drums at VCA. And last time he was on the show, I think way back on episode 84, we spoke about his time in the early 80s with the fantastic fusion band Pyramid. And this time around, we spoke about everything but Pyramid, what he's been doing in the intervening years, and some really, really exciting developments that happened to him this year. We speak a bit about his role as judge at the National Jazz Music Awards, which were held at Wangaratta. We speak about his duo with wonderful bass player Evropides Evropidou. We talk about improvisation. We talk about sounds in nature and man-made sounds. We talk about meditation. We talk about all sorts of things. He's a fascinating man, and I really am very, very proud to present this interview to you, and I'm super grateful to him and all the other marvellous musicians who gave so freely of their time to talk on Love That Album. So please pass the word on that this episode exists. If you're a fan of Australian music, and particularly if you're a fan of Australian jazz, then I hope that you really, really enjoy this. Actually, as I said earlier on, you don't even need to be a fan of jazz or Australian jazz you just need to be a fan of the creative process and these fellows all provide some really fascinating insight into how they make music and i think it doesn't matter what continent you live on what planet you live on if you love making music or if you love hearing people talking about the art of making music then all these people have something really fascinating to say so at this point i'll let joanne give the contact details and then we'll launch straight into the interviews And after the David Jones discussion, I'll return to talk to you about what episode 119 of Love That Album will be, although we've already gone and said it's XTC, but I'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of the show. Hope you enjoy the interviews. We'll be back later on. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes store. If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash lovethatalbum and start a music-related discussion. every month as they discuss music-related movies. iTunes, Facebook or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com. 
The See Here Podcast. It's a blast. Far out. 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 Morris here. Uh, I'm at the 2018 Wangaratta Festival of Jazz and Blues and have a few interviews lined up for you over this wonderful weekend and the first of them is with a man I've long admired and used to see tons of gigs many many years ago with his band Collard Greens and Gravy, the drummer for said band Mr Anthony Short aka Shorty. Welcome to Love That Album Shorty. Good morning. Uh, Which album are we loving? Uh, I love a lot of albums. Actually, that's probably a good way to start because you played for so many years in Collard Greens and Gravy. So, you know, obviously a big blues fan. But what's a, a blues album that you find indispensable? Is it something from chess? Is it something more contemporary in Australia, in fact? No, I, I, I would actually find PBS and Triple R indispensable. Yes. For my... Um, Listening pleasure. Listening pleasure. I was thinking about that. When I ran away from home at 19, we went in a VW to Darwin, and the first tape, that, the only tape we had that was on repeat was a Doobie Brothers tape. I, I still actually can't really listen to the Doobie Brothers. <laughs> and so that was just on repeat until we got to Taree, where I pulled the tape out of the car and ran over it <laughs> in the VW to never hear it again. And I bought two tapes from the Tari Music Shop. One was the Velvet Underground yes. banana album, and the other one was uh, John Mayall and the Blues Breakers featuring Eric Clapton. Okay, with him reading the Beano on the cover. Yes. And, they, they, and then those two albums then fueled the rest of the trip to uh, Darwin. And do you still have those tapes? Mm, oh, I have the Nico one. Right. The Velvet Underground, no, I think the John Mayall one's gone. And the first blues album I ever got was from the Geelong Library, and it was an anthology of the blues. It was just this an incredibly, really, really good overview of the blues from the and the, the first track was the Fra Fra Tribe. Wow, haven't even this African you know tribe that they reckon that they got a lot of the moves. Yes. Blues from. And one of my first Frio bands, it was called the Fra Fra Tribe. In dedication. In dedication. Wow, fantastic. Oh baby Yeah you put your spell on me As I said at the start of this, I used to see you many, many moons ago playing with Collard Greens and Gravy, and I think the first time that I actually saw you was on the Blues Train at okay. uh, yep. Queenscliff, and yep. my son Max, who was only two years old at the time, was hitting his cymbals, and I was trying to stop him, and he was like, no, 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 that's okay, I'm, I'm cool with that, and yep. you're very good with it. I think he ended up sort of being something like a mascot. He certainly for, was, old Max, for the, for, the, Max. for the band at the time. He's 20 years old now. I hope you're listening to this, Max. So I remember you from the Stork Hotel. We had a long-running residence. That's right, yeah, yeah. And I, I was um, just telling a couple of friends today that at one of the gigs, I think, it, oh, no, was it the Stork? No, it was the Rising Sun Hotel, I remember, where, where we saw you, and it was between sets, and just to keep... Max entertained you, picked him up, put him on the drum stool, 
and while you guys were off having a beer, you said, go on, knock yourself out, and the whole pub was enjoying <laughs> And now the only instrument he doesn't play is the drums nowadays, so... Uh, he'll do it one day, won't you, Matt? Yeah, I hope so. Unfortunately, Collard Greens and Gravy stopped a few years ago, at least in that lineup yes, for that the name. the original Collard Greens and Gravy. With the loss of James yes, Bridges. From, yes, So he stopped when James. How difficult was it for you to stop playing... I mean, obviously, with you know, with James no longer there, but even to not be playing with Ian anymore. I mean, you guys have been around together for, what was it, 15, 20 years or something like that, playing solidly. Yeah, was, it, 20, was it a bit of a 21, shock? 21 years. Uh, it was pretty difficult, actually. James was a, a great friend, um, you know, musical brother. And, um, and it, yeah, so for me, that, that was a, you know, a trio that um, I... I feel revolved a lot around um, James's guitar. So when he died for me, that was an end to that little chapter. And uh, I, it was quite hard, actually, to start playing again. But then lots of things came up, like the, the one I'm playing here with uh, Opelousas, with yes, Carol cool. Simpson. Cool. And she was also a great friend of James. And so around James's death, we talked of, you know, getting a, a project together and uh, and which with Alice and Ferrier has become Opelousa's baby. here for Opelousas and as you said it's you and Kerry Simpson who I remember from many years ago playing at the Swan Hotel with Ken Farmer yep. and Chris Farmer on bass I don't remember who the guitarist was they had a band the Mudcats they play every Sunday afternoon and then they'd be followed with a with a blues jam and I'd take part in the you know, playing drums at the at the jam sessions but um, I remember thinking wow now she's a knockout yeah. singer and certainly is. got her album Confessing the Blues which she had a whole lot of different ensembles so it's very diverse album you, you were saying that um, you know you and Kerry were discussing in principle the idea of putting something together yes at James's funeral so did you know straight from the outset that you wanted it to be this more gritty style of music or um no no had no idea what it would be well we tried to get um Shannon Bourne in it and, and we actually did a gig at Cherry with him um, a couple of weeks ago and that's great so you know we have this grand plan for Opelousas to be the you know the big band with uh, Shannon and um, you know three drummers and three guitarists <laughs> <laughs> equal drummer <laughs> so how did you pull Alison Ferrier in because I mean my limited knowledge of her of her work is she's more like a folky singer songwritery yeah, sort of yeah that's her person. history that's her background and this, the music I've heard of Abelousas thus far sounds like a million miles away from what she's doing. Yeah, you, you do hear elements of, of the folk tradition in, in her stuff, but um, no, she's um, really getting deep into those guitar grooves that you know that I loved about James's work as well. Yep. You know, just that relentless, just you know, the, the thumb throbbing and just you know, just you no know, trickery. You know, just like really solid, solid grooves. Um, and so, yeah, so she uh, was working with uh, Kerry Simpson in a 
know, like the Bluebells, I think they were called. Four or five uh, female singers. Yeah, so they were doing a bit of work with that, some festivals and stuff. And her and Alice, um, Ali sort of clicked and chatted and Carrie said, I've got this idea for a band, let's get Shorty in. And, yeah. and literally, um, she rang me on a Tuesday morning and said, me and Ali have got a song together, we're going to get together at Jeff Lang's shed tonight to record it. Are you free? And so literally, we, we went, I went in that night, first time the three of us played together and we recorded two of the songs that on Opelousas. Heard a couple of tracks on Bandcamp. but they, uh, they, they would have been the ones we did on that first night. So is this a full album or is it an EP? No, it's an to... EP. We didn't right. have, because we wanted it for Wangaratta, so we didn't... Two more and it would have been a full album. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's um, 30 minutes. 30 minutes of music. Now, I've also seen through the wonders of the inner nets that you're playing drums for another band called The Houndlings. Yes. Unfortunately, there's not a whole heap of footage out there, but there's a you know, few few clips that people have gone and taken with their phones. Tell us a little bit about that. That seems like a real fun band. That is a huge fun band. That's like the, my, my fun party band. We're on the token mail. Um, <laughs> and we just have a great fun. We get together in my shed on the Tuesday night. We, we jam and rehearse. And they, they you, you were talking before about they've been a continuity for me playing. We've been playing together five, six years. So you were playing with them while you were still yes, with Col well, Cold yes. Greens and Gravy? Okay. Yep. So, you know, so they, they kept me sane through that. They were beautiful women who really supported me. So, yeah, we do the, you know, the Melbourne circuit. And all the, yeah, we, we've got a, like the Union, the Loman, the Labour and Bain, a few other uh, gig, you know, like, you know, sort of... The semi, Northern circuit. Semi, yep, the Northern... Yeah, pop, come down to the caravan. Across the river. Ah, come on. <laughs> we need some entertainment on the south side of the city. Yeah. So that's great fun. And that's, so that's kind of more your um, 60s sort of soul, bluesy soul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what it sounded like from the yep, yep. couple of tracks I yep. got to see yep. on them. Um, so is there any plans to record a whole album? Uh, look, yes, yes, but, you know, we're, we're, we're a bit lackadaisical. <laughs> we, we just enjoy playing. So who are the members in that band? Anyone else who's doing other things no, on the not really. on the blues circuit? Because no, okay. um, it always seemed to me like you know, there's in Melbourne's blues scene and jazz scene for that matter, everyone's sort of in everyone else's band. And yeah, um, Georgie, the lead singer, is a great singer. Um, she's not really doing much else. She should be. She's fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Brizzy, guitarist. She uh, plays in a few other things. But yeah, it's you know it's a great side project for us all. Mm. So any other bands that you're yeah, involved yep. with that we should know about? Yes, I do a duo with um, a chap by the name of Dan Dinnan.
He's a um, great uh, guitarist, harmonica, vocalist, and writes lots of original. So we've been done a couple of festivals, and we're uh, working on a CD. Also bluesy in uh, yeah yeah sort of that's kind of more bluesy jazz. Mm -hmm. I guess you'd sort of say it's, you know he's, he's a really great player. That's been great fun. So that's Dan and Shorty, and uh, and then tomorrow actually uh, the band I'm playing with the. Um, George McFloyd Blues Band, yeah. and that's uh, we're playing up in Echuca. Oh wow! So Tomorrow. so is just a, a stop through on the way stop to Echuca. Stop through on the way to Echuca. So do you do much travelling around Victoria, around the country at all? Not terribly much. Like I mean, you know, it's the the reality of having um, a couple of boys, and I chose to sort of be, you know, mm. hang around and be the stay at home dad. So yep. it curtails any kind of real extended touring yeah so you know sort of a bit of a three hour kind of radius and um just weekend work but yeah right uh, either of them shown an interest in performance not really no no well accountants both hope so <laughs> i'm not encouraging it <laughs> let them get a real job yeah yeah well yeah. i need someone to support me in my old age uh, um, in my superannuation policy <laughs> Being a musician, an excellent super. Mm. All right. Well, this has been brief, but very, very sweet. Thanks very much for your time, Shorty, and really looking forward to seeing Opelousas play uh, this afternoon. Same here. All the best. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> At the Wangaratta Jazz Festival with guitarist Alex Stewart. Welcome to the podcast, Alex. Thank you very much. You're here sensibly to play for what is it, the umpteenth time or something like that. You've been, you, you were saying on your gig last night that you really love Wangaratta Jazz Fest. It's like one of the best jazz fests in the country. So, how many times have you played here? This is actually uh, on the main program. This is the um, second time I played here in 2012. Otherwise, I played here on the free stage quite a few times when I was younger, from when I was about 15, 16 years old to when I was 18 or so, something like that. Holy moly. Just but on the free stage, so yeah, with yeah, like yeah, school bands or whatever, or, or then my university band afterwards, one year two. You still don't get on the free stage without any chops, surely. Yeah, yeah, for so sure. yeah, yeah, definitely. It's not insignificant. So anyway, I want to say you know, congratulations on your new album, Aftermath. Before we sort of get around to talking about that, I want to briefly talk about your earlier musical activities. You're originally from Canberra, but you're living nowadays in Paris. What originally grabbed your interest musically? Was it something European? What made you want to be a guitar player? What made you passionate about music in the first place? 
my parents weren't artists or anything, but they, they really appreciated the arts in general yep. and music as well. And I think um, my dad had a big record collection at home, which I used to check out and, and really enjoy uh, from time to time. And I think that, that environment really just pushed me towards loving music and wanting to play it as well. And I remember when I was a kid, I, I played piano first. I used to tell stories on the piano. Yep. So I think there was something inside when I was like four or five years old that, that, that wanted to play music. And I yep. tried the piano out. It was good for a while and then I, I got sick of it so I stopped it. But I think there was something <laughs> music inside of me that wanted, to, that wanted to keep going. And then when I was 12 or 13, it was actually my parents that encouraged me again to, to, to pick up the guitar at that point. I wanted to play the drums actually. Uh, good man. Yeah, yeah, so I was going to play and then my dad said, oh, try this guitar. He had his old guitar and he, and he passed it over to me and I gave it a try and then I, I just kept playing it. So yeah. I never really picked up the drums. I, I play the guitar a little bit like a drummer sometimes. Like I, I love the rhythmic side of things. Well, I was just sort of thinking, like seeing your show last night, a lot of what you play was very staccato and I thought, yeah, you're very much a rhythmic. Yeah. yeah. Appreciator of uh, rhythmic playing. Yep, definitely. Okay. So that, yeah, that's the drummer in you. Yeah, 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 definitely. And I think uh, I try, I, I conceive the, the guitar a bit like a, like drums in a way. Yep. In, in the ratio between the high and low, like a bass drum and a snare drum in a simple way of kind of putting it. So sometimes I'll, I'll add that on the guitar. And when I compose, I'm always thinking rhythm a lot. In some ways, that, that's even more important to me than, sure. than improvising or solving. I think just rhythm itself is really... Well, there was something else that struck me about your music was that a lot of... For, for yourself being... As a guitarist, the leader of a jazz ensemble, and yet a lot of the main melodies, a lot of the solos were carried out by your horn section. I want to come to them shortly, but you're, you strike me as someone more as a composer rather than just purely as a guitarist. You're, you think like a composer. I think, right, well, this piece will work best where the horn section are leading the charge rather than the guitar. Is that, would that be fair to say? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. When I compose, I think I hear an instrument which should be a soloist. Or sometimes I'll hear guitar at first and then I'll go, oh, actually, no, I'd rather hear Arno, the trumpet player, for example, play, or I'd rather hear Irving than myself. I think uh, the most important thing for a song is what it needs, basically, rather yep. than putting myself forward, because I don't really care. I just want the songs to sound good. Yes, yeah. you know, I don't want to be a leader that's, you know, a leader like. Because it happens a lot, I guess, in, in, in music in general, particularly in, in jazz, where there's someone's name which is at the front, so they have to come forward. Right. And, and be at the front of the band and that's not really important to me what's, re what's really important is just um, for the songs to sound good where, 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 where I want them to where I want them to be sure as like as guitarists in contemporary the contemporary sense I'm thinking about you know people like John Schofield or Pat Metheny and they tend to be very much up front and I sort of was you know, once again coming back to this thing about thinking you're thinking more compositionally more what sounds good on the tune yeah okay I can do a little bit of a solo here but you know, let I know shine or they carried the tunes last night. It was just... Uh, yeah, for sure. Really, really wonderful. Sydney Morning Herald might have been you know, a couple of years ago or something that you moved to Paris to be in what you thought was a culturally aware city but it could have equally been New York listening to tunes on uh, the latest album like uh, Steps Backwards or Lardy or even you know, uh, Pleased to Be there's something of the dark melancholy that seems to stand out on the ECM record label 
Okay, is, cool. Uh, is, is, so I take it from that reaction, that's not necessarily something that's conscious, but are you a fan of the music that's been on ECM, so, you know, like Eberhard Weber or Bill Frisell in his early days, or Pat Metheny, any of those sorts of guys? Is, yeah, does that, does I, that drive I, you absolutely. Not as much anymore, because I, I don't listen to as much jazz as what I, um, what I used to back in the day, but yeah. I still listen to jazz. And yeah, sure. Well, jazz. And uh, Bill Frizzell obviously is a, is a huge influence, and yep. uh, that ECM sound is absolutely beautiful. That, that that space which you have in those recordings is really uh, something that's quite special to me. And maybe that's something that's that's quite European in that in that particular label. In that music, yeah, it, it's often there's a European kind of sound to it. Uh, even though it's not necessarily European musicians, it's a, Europe, it's, a, it's a German label. And, there's space to it, and I think yeah, maybe that's something that's come to me. But melancholy is, is something that's often in, in my music. But it's like a, it's a Ravi Shankar. Ravi Shankar explained it one time when he described his own music. He, he describes it as like a happy kind of sadness, uh, wow. and that's that's the way I, I sometimes see it as well. Well, I mean, just like listening to the tunes that you played last night. I can't remember which one it was, but it's the second tune that you played in your set last night, and that had very much so sort of like a, a joyful, very major key melodic feel to it, and I just thought, wow, wow, this is in contrast to the impressions that I've sort of already had from yeah. listening to listening to Aftermath. And just to sort of come to the theme of Aftermath, you said in the show last night, and as what I've read, that the whole focus behind Aftermath was your musical impressions, your musical feelings after the terrorist attacks of a couple of years ago mm. with the Eagles of Death Metal concert and the French-Germany soccer game. You translate melancholy to music very, very well, but how difficult was it to you to translate those those feelings to music? Were you feeling overwhelmed at first and just poured out? How, how did you compose? Uh, I, I wrote that tune probably um, in, I think it was January or February of 2016, so I had had time to absorb what had happened in Paris and, and you know, I, was, I was full of sadness. It was, straight after the event, I was full of anger and, and full of sadness as well, but also defiance. and. This composition came out of that, but in a more kind of thought-out way, I think. had seeped into me a bit once I absorbed them a little bit um, a little bit more uh, so was it just that tune or was it the whole album was sort of like your reaction particularly, to that tune but then uh, the, the rest of the album has different different sort of influence but that's sort of the guiding line to the the idea of the album and it's opposing I guess in, in a very simple kind of way the beauty and the ugliness of the world yes there is beauty surrounds us every day it's a beautiful sunny out day, day yep. outside and there's so much happiness we can take from our everyday lives, but then there's so much ugliness in the world as well. And particularly at the moment with uh, you know, the rise in far-right governments around the place, yeah, a sort of a, a rise in uh, ignorance again, I feel like, it, particularly in the Western world, I'd say, yep. and, and sort of a rise in geopolitical tension again, political uh, op- opposition blocks, I don't know how to say that exactly. So they're the two kind of opposing forces, I get. It's, it's, it's maybe a bit of a cliche, but not good and evil, but beauty and ugliness, you know. Yes. And that's, that's what surrounds us every day, and, and uh, I guess what I want my music to, to do is to bring out the beauty most of all, to, for it to win over. <laughs> well, I want to ask in particular one tune, my favourite tune on the album, which you played last night, was The Invisible Force. 
things that I really, really appreciated about the performance last night was the sense of dynamic. There was a big build. There's, you know, yourself with the guitar by yourself at the beginning of the tune, yeah. and just as it builds up, and your drummer Antoine, he's getting more and more frantic as as the tune goes on, and and, and uh, I know his voice. It, it, it just it has some of that beauty. We were talking. I mentioned before about Pat Metheny Group, and like he had, he always tends to use vocalists as an instrument. It's yeah. never anything lyrical, and it sort of brought to mind that. So, was there anything in particular that inspired that? How did you kind of compose that tune? Pretty much what I was talking about just beforehand. That opposition, that was between <laughs> beauty and ugliness. You can kind of feel that the melody is extremely, um, maybe beautiful. I guess <laughs> it's a good word of putting it. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, quite a simple melody, and it's like a cry, slightly melancholic as well. And then we go to the solo section, which is really dark, and it kind of there's another there's another feel there. Actually, I've never really explained this before, but the the uh, the idea of the invisible force. Basically, I feel like there's there's a in, invisible force within the world which can create once again ugliness and and uh, domination of some people over other people as well. Um, sometimes I think in uh, in French, uh, find it hard find it hard to come up with the words. Well, maybe maybe we've got one or two French listeners, so <laughs> come up with the uh, yeah, no, that's right. expression. No, that's all right. I'll go through with it. But basically, the idea is that, I, that when I meet people, they're essentially really nice people. Everyone I've ever met, even if I've, I've had a, a preconceived idea of that they'd, they'd be a, an asshole or, or someone. Uh, who, who wants to dominate someone else, or who's um, who's a who's a who's a power monger or whatever? I always find this when I have a chat to them, they're a, they're a good person. So the invisible, the other invisible forces is this. There's this force which is in humanity, which is hard to explain, which I don't see every day on the day-to-day basis. But it, it creates this domination of one human over another being, one human being over another human being, and uh, can create violence and ugliness in the world. And that's that's the idea of the invisible force. So I probably have a better way of explaining it, but that's no, that's 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 fine. That's fine. Last night while watching them, the thing that struck me, I've seen a lot of bands on stage enjoying themselves, but what I really appreciated was about how encouraging all the band members were. So when your saxophone player, I've forgotten his name. Irving uh, uh, oh, I mean, he when he did his solo and Antoine was behind the drum kit, he had this smile like, I'm really enjoying this. Yeah. It's not enough that he's got to spend all this time sort of you know, working out his... You know, the, the, the complex rhythms that he does, but he's got the facility there to be able to enjoy what the other members are doing. And when when your bass player had gone and done his solo, everyone sort of gave him a pat on the back and you know saying to the audience, "Come on, give him a applause." That you really seemed like a band of brothers, as it were. So, how did how did you find these guys? Were they? Um, I, I played with uh, Antoine and Irving on my previous album, so the, the last album before Aftermath, which yep. is uh, Place to Be. And absolutely love playing with them. And the bass player from that record was playing a lot, so it was hard to get a hold of him to do the gigs. And I, I tried a few different bass players out, and Uriel did a replacement one time, and he was he was wonderful. And Arno also replaced in that same band. And um, we did a few sessions, and 
Actually, the, what made me really want to keep the band together, apart from them being amazing musicians, like that's sort of the first reason, is the great dudes as well, and there's a really, really good vibe in the band. And I felt like it was a band that could really work together and actually create a band sound. Yeah, so it was a really, really good vibe in the band. Like we, we, we got along really well, and, and uh, I felt like this band we could really work on the music together, and I could bring in the, the compositions, but then people would bring in ideas together and. and create that, that band sound and you felt it uh, when, you, when you saw us playing last night we're, we're happy to play together and it is, there is a, a really supportive and, and non-competitive vibe which sometimes you can find in sometimes you don't as well but it's, yeah. it's, it's great when it's not there it's, it's, most of the time it's, it's the best thing when it's not there but it can right. exist as well and sometimes it's, it's slightly there you don't it's, just, it's never not, not really clear but there's like an un, underpinning of um, Slight competition, which, which can't exist, but in this band, it doesn't seem like any of that. I, I could see no, that. No, not time. at all. It's just, it's just good vibes and, and, and really, really supportive to all of us. And that's, wow. that's a real pleasure. Yeah. So you're playing tomorrow night. Well, by the time this podcast comes out, that'll be history. But you're yeah. playing tomorrow night, I believe, in Brunswick at the uh, Jazz Lab. Yeah. Yeah. Have you have you been have you had a chance to see the Jazz Lab yet? Um, no, first time actually. I played at Banners Lane last time. Uh, and that was in 2014. That was my last. Which is, which is. I don't think anymore with us. But, no, that's right. But, but that's Jazz Lab is a beautiful room. Yeah, I think it's yeah. the, and it's the same owner. I think it's Michael oh, okay. Tony. Okay, I'm pretty sure. And he they, he closed down Venice Lane, but he's opened Jazz Lab, so that's great. And I've heard it's it's an amazing space. guitarists that you really like, it's like the holy trinity of, of, of jazz, modern yep. jazz guitarists, Bill, Bill Frizzell, John Schofield and Pat Metheny, they're the guys I was really into, yep. but I think now the guy I love him to the most is, is Bill Frizzell, I, I really listen to him, but when I check him out I'm just blown away by his, his modicisms. The Aftermath album is already like a year or something like that old or something like that, so what's the immediate future for you uh, compositionally? And composition now, I'm, I'm um, taking a bit of a break. I haven't written anything since Aftermath. Right. Uh, it's been a while, so it's late, late 2017. I guess I'll, I'll start writing when I when I feel the the, the to writing. I guess when I put out an album, there's a lot, I put a lot of emotion into it, and a lot of it comes from the heart, and it's not, not draining, but I, I say a lot within each album, and I think of it's time to, to get into it again. Sure, I'm not sure. someone who composes every day, like some people do, some people have that, that kind of work process of just getting up and, like someone who writes a book, they, they'll write every day, someone who composes will compose every day, but I tend to just have periods where, I, where I'm really, uh, I have a lot of things to say and, and put them out there, and at the moment, it's, there's probably some stuff welling inside of me, but it's, it's not coming out yet, so I think, in the next year or so, probably in, in six months' time or so, I'll, I'll get back to it. But whenever I, whenever I feel it, and put another record out in the next couple of years at some point. Well, hopefully we'll see you back here. I hope so too. Yeah. That's actually great, festival. Actually, so that's the thing. Have you ever recorded any albums with any Australian musicians? Have you recorded any albums back? back yeah, here? I recorded an album called Waves just before I went over to Paris in 2005. Okay. With um, pretty much. Uh, some teachers from the ANU where I used to study, Erika Jai and Miroslav Bukowski, both, both amazing musicians. 
and then a bunch of guys from the School of Music, like James Hauptman. I don't know if you know him. He's playing here as well. I, I know oh, Ben Hauptman. I'll be he's, seeing him. He's Ben seeing brother, in, in and an so brother. Hauptman's right, right, right. Yeah, 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 he was on that. And uh, Julian Banks, who was playing here, he's playing here too. Quite a whole bunch. Michael Coggins yeah. was on it as well. A bunch of guys was, went from like quartet to, to ten piece. Wow. And uh, that was so all camera guys. And I'm, I'm really, I'm pretty happy with that record. It was a long time ago, but I listened to it still. And I'm like, oh, cool. I was, I was 20, 21 when I, when I recorded it. Um, so, so that's the run I've done with Australian musicians, but since then I haven't done anything. I've done three other records after then, and they're all with. So you, you'd be pretty happy where you, how you think you may have matured over those ten odd years as a composer or as a musician. Do you look like from album to album to think I could have done that better, or because so much of what Aftermath was about was more emotional rather than? just trying to be technical exercises mm-hmm. so, so. either way I, I can see the development through each album and I'm always proud of each one I'm like, oh cool that, that, that was good and it's a, a period of my life and what I'm listening to but I think Aftermath is the one I'm most proud of maybe it's the last one too and it, yeah. it, it's, it reflects the most the direction where I want to go comp- composition and what I want to listen to as well because uh, I, I don't listen to as much jazz these days um, what are you like, listening to? a lot of world music stuff like uh, African stuff um, Indian music as well yeah. and then a lot of rock a lot of um, indie rock kind of bands like Grizzly Bear and Dirty Projectors yep. really like Jeff Buckley he's like a classic one he's, he's amazing yeah Grace one of the best records of all time uh, you, you can come on this show anytime you want to sing, <laughs> sing Grace <laughs> it's amazing I'd, I'd love to be able to sing it that's one person I wish I'd seen do you know do you remember when he passed away uh, it was 97 I think 97 yeah I yeah. think I got into him after he passed away or just around the same kind of period of time yeah, yeah, yeah. so I, I didn't have the chance to want to go see him live because I wasn't really into him yet Sure. Oh, that album is just amazing. I wish you'd done another one, but that, it's just a, a work of art, and like, I still listen to it. For, uh, I think that album's influenced some of the way I conceive guitar. He's, he's guitar a really underrated guitar player. He was a great guitar player. Yeah, he was amazing, and and also the voicings he used, and the way he worked with the other guitarists as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really open. A lot of open strings and stuff, and. Uh, I guess that's that scintillating guitar sound they have has kind of influenced some of the way I compose as well. You know, kind of sort of sparkly, way. maybe. Very sparkly, yeah. And and when I write, often I write with two guitars, and that sparkly kind of thing yeah, yeah, yeah. comes through as well. So yeah, listen to that. And then it depends. And I listen to put on jazz record from time to time, and and uh, I'm into kind of world jazz stuff these days. Um, but I go through periods. But but anyway, it's it's, it's uh, a good reflection of where I, um, where I am with all the different influences that I have and. and how I'd want to hear um, an improvised music recording sure. for myself. Yeah. All right, well, I think we'll have to call it quits because <laughs> I think uh, there's, there's a whole lot going on in this room. Oh, goodness me. But thank you so much, Alex, for uh, coming onto the podcast. It's really been a pleasure Likewise, to, be, to be uh, acquainted, to have discovered your music and to have seen you. So um, look forward to uh, whatever it is that you do next. Okay. All the best. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Love That Album.
back to Love That Album, the Wangaratta Festival of Jazz and Blues special, and I'm here with guitarist Ben Hauptman. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Is this your first podcast? Yeah, and I'm very excited. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> oh, I hope we'll uh, won't do a crap job for yeah. you. In the last couple of weeks was when I first got to hear your music. I was sort of going through the list of who was performing, thought, right, well, let's have a little bit of a listen on YouTube mm. and get an idea who I want to go to, and then I heard a bunch of your music, thought, right, I've got to go see Ben. Now, I got to see you perform live this afternoon, and I had one impression in my head mm. of what your music was like from the recorded work, and something very, very different today. Yes. Uh, now, your your gig today was listed as Ben Hopman's ideal band. So. Tell the listeners a little bit about what that was about, how you put that together. Okay, actually my sister helped me put that together. She's the artistic director, Zoe Hauptman, or one of the artistic directors. And, you know, when she was putting the musicians together for the festival, she asked me, if is there anything I would like to do? You know, and throw a few names out of who I might like to do a project with. And I said the names of the musicians in the band, everyone, I go, oh, Harry Sutherland, I'd like to, you know, and she's going, yeah, yeah, he'll be there. Franco, Raggett, yeah, yeah, he'll be there. Arnie Hannah, Arnie will be there. And then of course she'll be there and my brother. And and so basically um, I was allowed to make a band as long as it was with musicians who were already playing here. Yes. And it worked out that I could have my band <laughs> that right. I wanted anyway. So it was a bit of luck. I mean, because what you did today was an all acoustic affair. Yeah. And your albums are electric. We'll come back to yeah. that in a couple of minutes. But musically, like you referred to Rai Kuda, which got yeah. a very big nod of approval from the audience. And it, yeah. It, it, was, uh, it was beautiful. And it seemed like it was, I was trying to describe to a friend who, you know, is only here for the blues music. And yeah. she wasn't a jazz fan, but I said, I think you would have really, really loved this. It's sort of more Americana as interpreted by jazz musicians. Yes. Would that be fair to say? Yes, yes, absolutely. All, all that. That music, you know, maybe apart from three tracks, were all written on that guitar that I'm playing. So to play that music live on that guitar felt very comfortable, even though it's a very hard guitar to play. Like a friend of mine built that for me wow. for my um, 18th birthday. Holy and so it's it's a, a resonator guitar, which yep. people would know, but it has a classical guitar neck on it. So the fingering's kind of tricky and the action's high. The the neck got snapped off it and my um, dad fixed it with a piece of metal. And it's got an incredible sound, but it's not like the, you know, it's a unique guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, it's the guitar that I play it when I'm sitting at home. That's the guitar I play and practice on and, and, and write the, music. Presumably what you compose on. Yeah. And then so for those albums, like um, I expand, you know, what, what I can play by myself into, you know, for the first first album there was uh, 12 people on it and for this second record it's all electronic so I, I took these tunes that I've written and turned them into MIDI via MIDI guitar yep yeah <laughs> I don't know why. I think because this day and age, it's so I, the first album I got a fellowship to help 
cover the cost to get all these people. So half the band was from Melbourne, half from Sydney, and mm. paid everyone. You know, production of vinyls expensive, yep. so that cost a lot of money. And then the second album, I wanted to do it myself with my own money, and so MIDI was good. I wrote the whole thing on MIDI and then added live instrumentation on top of it when it needed it. So there's a few tracks where there are drums, live drums, and. Mm-hmm. And then I pulled in a few favors, like Katie Noonan sang on it for me, and right. you know, just different people would come and help me out. So <laughs> that's lovely. Yeah, I want to go back. So yeah, you mentioned that your sister Zoe is the artistic director of the festival, and you also had your brother James, uh, James yeah. playing on percussion. And I got to say, I first thing I walked into the theater and I saw what they got two floor toms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, That's really an unusual setup, yeah. and but the dynamic was beautiful. You know, yeah. amongst all the musicians and. Uh, all the little percussion instruments that James and was it Evan, Evan, Evan yeah. were, were playing it just really worked so well so I want to go back to what was it like you growing up were you, were you and James and Zoe always playing music together uh, not always playing but always listening so we're very lucky I realized because I teach music now and and um, to be exposed to the different music that we were when we were kids before we were even interested in playing music like we started we all started when we were in high school Mm. so for when we were very young to um through primary school we were exposed to a lot of music from my dad who's a um, trumpet player wow he had all the cti recordings you know a lot of miles davis yeah freddie hubbard and Mm. um just everything frank zappa and blood sweat and tears and um, a lot of miles davis and so when you get exposed to it when you're young you don't realize that it's different so we always had an ear for hearing music hearing what different musicians sound like improvising and Mm -hmm. so when we took up playing instruments we could hear the music but obviously we couldn't play it it took years and years of practice um but we were really we we kind of understood what we had to do we had to jam and try soloing and so as soon as we started playing music in year seven year eight we'd be jamming together seeing how we could solo and recording it and seeing what it sounded like it sounded terrible but <laughs> you've got to start something yeah we knew the i think we knew the sound that we were trying to get towards said the start I had one impression from listening to the music mm. that yet you'd recorded and got something completely different today beautiful mm. but just sort of coming to the recording so even there there seems to be a lot of diversity so uh, it seems like you had different jazz styling so you had uh, a tune called uh, Megalopolis yeah so, you know, very very jazz fusion yeah and on this the song which I think you played an acoustic version today Nadia's tune yes sounded to me like it was influenced by Lalo Schifrin yeah uh, that that sort of early 70s sort of sound and uh, you know, reggae on uh, Dagobat so yeah. well my original question was going to be what was in your record collection but you've already gone and sort yeah, of yeah. explained so but for, for all of that stuff right Dagobat for example is a tune I wrote when I was living in London with a bunch of Chilean musicians oh, right yeah. and every Sunday we would go and busk at the Columbia Road flower markets in, in London and we'd play Andean music 
So I was learning how to play an instrument called the charango, mm -hmm. which is a little armadillo guitar. But busking, I would be playing the chords and would, I'd learn all the tunes. And The little section in Dagobert is like a very common sounding Andean chord progression. Right. So there's an influence in that. The other section of Dagobert has to do with exactly like there's kind of a that reggae, I guess, reggae influence, but it's, mm -hmm. a, it's definitely a fusion. So everything that happens in those tunes is from the little snippets of influences from different styles of music. So were you like, going on the, the fusion side, were you yeah. listening to Al Demiola? And, and well, yeah, like... so there's that track, Johnny. Yep. which is basically inspired by the way he wrote for Mahavishnu Orchestra. Right. So it's got to do with a certain time signature, which in that case was 15-8, right? <laughs> but then 15-8 can be turned into 5-4, feeling in, in triplets. Yes. And so McLaughlin used to do a lot of stuff where he'd have like, you know, the 12-string guitar playing a 15-8 kind of weird little ostinato part and then underneath he'd have a really rocky kind of blues thing yeah. in five so i took that idea and that was the you know just putting little bits and pieces like that into tunes i was just sort of thinking like while i was watching the show today mm. musically it's not really similar but i was trying to think of who else i'd heard who was doing jazz acoustically mm. i mean with, like with a band and the only person i could think of was you know, john mclaughlin yeah with his uh the, the french band yeah, with uh, katia and mariella Back, yeah, yeah, uh, that's right. Back in back in the eighties, I think your yeah, music spoken hero. Yes, well, so be... that yeah, say the combination that we use today that was directly inspired by Raikuda. If you go on a U Raikuda YouTube little afternoon, you'll you'll come across a lot of recordings where he's in a circle playing. You know, percussionists might have a darabukar and like a few bits and pieces of a kit. He'll be playing mandolin. There'll be a guitarist and like a bass player and three singers. So it's kind of the idea is that horseshoe kind of shape where everyone's sitting around and playing. Everyone's looking at what everyone else is doing. Yeah, and it could be in a theatre like it was today or it could be just at home mm. in the lounge room altogether. That's kind of what we're going for. Some tunes that I heard on the self-titled album, 
make use of the human voice. And this is something that I saw in Alex Stewart's show last Mm. night. And I was also trying to think who uses the human voice within jazz as an instrument. I, I kept coming back to say like some of the tunes of Vince Guaraldi, like in the in the Peanuts yeah. stuff, and like lately Kamazi Washington I yeah. think on his albums have been yeah. have been doing that. Were, were you a fan of Vince, or, or how, how did you come to decide that you want to use melodies with the human voice as an instrument? I've thought about it, and I think it's got to do with a lot of musicians, instrumentalists, wish they could sing, and so like a lot of the melodies that I write, I wish that I could sing like the way Gian sings, you know. So to have someone, I remember almost like crying when I heard her sing one of the, the tracks that we recorded in the studio. It just sounded so amazing. So, you know, I remember maybe Floor, you know, Airto? Yes, Some, yes. Yeah, he, he would kind of have singing. Yep. That one, that tombo and 7-4. There's a few things, but I think I just... I know, also, Pat Metheny would have... Oh, I mean, of course, none, yeah. none of us can tell us as yeah. well would, would uh, be doing that sort of thing. But I think for me, it was just because I was living in Melbourne and Gian and was one of my best mates down there. So, and she's just incredible. So that's, I think, all my bands are friends, basically. She was a friend. Mm-hmm. And um, her partner, Chris, is the bass player on the... And one of my best mates, Jules, was a saxophone player and another friend. So it's just kind of mates. And so when I did it, I go, well, what would sound good? Gian singing yep. these melodies. So especially with the saxophone, it just blends well. So your resume of musicians who you've performed with, and I'm, there's a bunch of them who are outside the jazz realm, but mm. it's absolutely amazing. And once again, I come back to the whole thing of diversity, yeah. which is... You're probably you know, a great strength for you. So, you know, I saw you know, Bertie Blackman, mm. Mavis Staples, uh, James Morrison, and Dr. Europingo, who you played yeah, yeah. a song of his at the end of your set today. Yeah. What is it that inspires you outside of the jazz world? I mean, are these, are these just gigs that people say, oh, we hear that Ben is good for your session, or are these people who you aspired to play with? Or? I've fallen into a lot of these situations. So, with Bertie, one of my friends, his name's Cameron Dale. He's an amazing guitarist. Mm. Plays with Katie Noonan, Lior, Bertie. And so because he's playing with all these different people who tour a lot, he needed a sub. So he got me to um, help him out with Bertie's band. And then he sort of left Bertie's band to go play with Katie. So I would start playing with Bertie. And he kind of showed me how to play rock. I'd, you know, I'd listen to rock, but this, what Birdie plays was this specific type of music with, sure. where you had to play a, a set role. So I learned about that through him, and then I ended up playing with Katie Noonan and Lior, and all through Cameron Dale. Actually, with Dr. G, it's also through Cameron. visiting him when he lived in India and his wife brought Dr. G over for a cultural event, a hundred year concert or something, Mm -hmm. I can't remember. But anyway, um, I met his band after their performance and got on well with the guitarist Francis and he couldn't do a gig a couple of months later and I was in his memory so he just uh, recommended that I do it and then 
that was the first gig I did with him, and then I ended up play with, playing with him for about six years. So you would have recorded with him? Yeah, 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 did the gospel album, and yeah, I spent a lot of time, we toured around the world a few times, and he, he's probably one of the biggest influences on me, um, musically. That's incredible, because I mean, it, yeah. in a way it's unexpected. He just yeah, it was, ex- un- you. was completely unexpected. I went from playing with this band called Blue Juice, which is a kind of trip where you're doing the big day out, and yeah. Splendor and stuff like that, to playing with him, and it's it was completely different <laughs> complete if if anyone hasn't doesn't know about dr g he's got a documentary out that gives you really good insight into him and his um culture and his story musical story it's amazing yeah it's I've, so good i've got a big thing for music related documentary yeah and, yeah and also yeah given the amazing array of musicians that you've played with and st- different styles that you're playing mm. is there anything that you want to do that you haven't done yet i mean you're still You've got a whole lifetime ahead, but is there anything that's in your mind at the moment that you're thinking, wow, I've never done this? Yes, it's weird, but um, me and Arnie, like, I I really like Mongolian music and Tuvan throat singing. So that's something... That's another great documentary, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah. and I've been listening to it for quite a while, and there's a lot of music from different parts of the world that I love, and, you know, I just want to keep finding new music and then see what happens with the music that I write. Because the more diverse stuff that I listen to, the kind of little bits and pieces pop out in the music that I write. So I think I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. But the Mongolian music is something I want to look at a bit closer. Because you were saying that you teach in Brisbane. Yeah. At, uh, was it the, the JMI? Jazz Music Institute, yeah. yeah. Which now has its own tune. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> JMI Blues, folks, yeah. look at that. And in, in the course that you teach a student, are you sort of pushing them towards investigating these sorts of things and or for that matter how different is it for the current round of students like who you teach mm. to what it was for you when you were at the ANU I've gotten to think a lot about that and all that I can come up with is that I was pre-YouTube and it's it's really interesting like it's not every student but the majority they kind of don't listen to records like we did when we were younger they listen to tracks And it kind of changes, you know, you listen to tracks on YouTube or listen to tracks on Spotify. You don't go to the CD shop or get some, someone gives you a cassette with a record on it and you listen to the whole thing over and over and over and over and over and over again until someone else gives you another record that you haven't heard. It was harder to find the music when I was younger. There was a few record stores, Birdland, there was Red Eye Records in Canberra and um, a couple of other places. It was just harder to get access to different types of music. So whenever someone gave you something that sounded really good, you'd get obsessed with it. And these days you can get whatever you want and it's a bit overwhelming even for me. So I think the attention span thing is different because you need to listen to that, you need to listen to this. And whereas um, I was kind of lucky before YouTube, I think I'm glad I was studying music then, you know. I mean, you could argue either way, you know, with, with with so much available, it's always great to be able to sample before you go out and buy that album. But on the other yeah. hand, it, it seems like you're saying that because so many people are sort of going for the Spotify's and the like of the world, yeah. they say, that's enough. Yeah. They don't need to go out. And... Yeah, it's and I'm the same, you know, there's you, you can be teaching and you can go on a different tangent and find an example of exactly what you want to, whatever tangent you're on, you know, yeah. it's 
things move a lot quicker these days, you know. But they deal with it. They don't know any different. So it is what it is. That's that. <laughs> teaching, teaching, you could, you know, go on and on about teaching where everyone at that school is constantly thinking about how can we be better teachers? How can we communicate these ideas that we're so passionate about here? And it's just constantly evolving. Every year you finish teaching, you go, I can't wait till next year because I think I'll do it a little bit better. Like we're teaching, um, it's the equivalent of a university degree. So we're teaching people who are quite into the music. Right. So it's exciting to be a part of it. Yeah. I love the most dedicated. It's, you know, yeah. They, they want to be there. This yeah, is not yeah. something that their parents have pushed them into. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, it's been brief, but very sweet. Yeah. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate your time, Ben. Okay. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Love That Album. Hi, this is Dolph Lundgren. Hi, I'm Lance Henriksen. Hi, this is Keith Gordon. Robert Kuhn. Miguel Ferrer. Nancy Allen. Robert Davi. Richard Elfman. Ileana Douglas. Patrick Warburton. Dwingshauser. Cliff DeYoung. Steve Railsback. Mr. D. William Cass. If you haven't been listening to the Projection Booth podcast, you're missing out. Each week, the Projection Booth brings you in-depth discussions of some of the most interesting movies ever made. I'm Mike White. No, the other one. I'm the guy who wrote the film fanzine Cashiers to Cinemart since 1994. Since early 2011, I've been co-hosting the Projection Booth podcast. Try us, won't you? I never try anything. I just do it. Visit the Projection Booth at projection-booth.com. immensely excited. This interview was supposed to be recorded at the Wangaratta Festival of Jazz and Blues. Uh, we couldn't make the times work, so David Jones has very, very kindly agreed for me to come down to his office at the Victorian College of the Arts here in Melbourne, but we'll still include this as part of the Wangaratta Festival of Jazz 
episode because there's stuff to talk about what just happened at the weekend. So uh, welcome back to the show, David. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Morris. It's really great to be here and have a chat. Mm. Well, we last spoke on the podcast something like two years ago mm. to talk about your time with Pyramid. I think that was on Skype rather than face-to-face. It, it, it was, it was. And I have to say, all the more so now sort of having listened to a lot of what you've been doing in recent years that I appreciate all the more that you spoke about Pyramid because that's sort of like another lifetime ago what what you did. It can feel like that, yeah. Not not just time-wise, but in terms of what you're doing nowadays. Yeah, that's a really good observation. Thank you, Morris. And for me, um, probably since I would say 1984, there was a big life change for me and I, I took on a meditation lifestyle. And so, so much was pointing towards... I thought at that stage I was going to reti- retire, which was a bad idea. I was only 26, and I had had a full career up to that point. But the retirement was really a retiring from the push, 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 push against myself. And I'm just saying that now, and it's actually coming out in my mouth <laughs> as, I think, <laughs> as I think about it. It, was, it. it actually was a retirement. I didn't play as much, and I moved to Sydney. So I was born in Melbourne, and <clears throat> what happened was it was one of those calls that you make to someone important. And it's when you hear the story of something like this, you think, oh, no, that only happens in a movie. I rang Don Burroughs, and we, oh, Pyra- wow. Pyramid had actually been on the Don Burroughs collection, which That's is right. a yeah. one-hour special every week on ABC TV, which is pretty amazing. Wish they'd bring something like that back. But oh, yeah. But that's you're, another story. <laughs> so Don was on the, on, you know, he hosted the whole one-hour program on Pyramid and played with us on one of the, the pieces. Anyway, so I was, I was just ringing to say hello. I'm in Sydney. I'm living here now, which was in 1994, uh, 85 by the time I got to Sydney. And Don said one of the most amazing things. He said, David, you're here to live, not just to visit. And I said, yeah. He said, would you like to do some gigs? He didn't say, would you like to join the band? His band, one of the most iconic jazz bands in, in Australian history. Absolutely. But also, he said, Oh, and would you like to do some teaching? You know, very casual, like, but Sydney Conservatorium, which became nine years and um, head of jazz drums at the Conservatorium. Wow. And he was the head of jazz at that time, you know, for many years. <clears throat> and so that began this beautiful connection with Don. And that was my Sydney connection in terms of a mentor in the traditional jazz, I would say, because my mentor for improvisation on a much broader scale was um, Brian Brown right. here in Melbourne when I joined his band when I was 18, and as did Jeremy Allsop, mm, another 18-year-old. And Yeah, amazing. And, and that was Bob Sedegreen, who, you know, is also the next generation to me, and they looked after us incredibly. And one of the beautiful things that Brian said to me was, David, you play whatever you want. So it made you fearless, you know, when you've got complete license to improvise and be be yourself, basically. Um, that was an incredible thing. So the same with Don. I remember we, we started doing gigs and it, it was like a retirement because I wasn't doing like five or six gigs a week. You know, uh, Don would do, say, two or three things. He was not winding down yet, but starting to do less. And with the conservatorium as well, there was so much going on there. But we would do like a Music of Eva tour for two or three days. That was it maybe for that fortnight. Mm. Um, but, you know, one of the first gigs I did was uh, an opera house gig with him. So it was like... Into no pressure. The, no, it was, well, I was in a very beautiful headspace, and I, you know, which I keep developing. And the headspace was a complete shift from really extreme lifestyle, you know, like and pushing it, burning the candle at both ends. 
And it's okay for a little while, you know, as a youngster, but it gets to a point also where you think, well, why am I doing what I'm doing? You know, the big questions were coming up. So to join Don's band at that point was perfect because it wasn't, you know, full-on touring. It wasn't, um, and then the teaching, even the teaching was like two or two and a half days or something. It wasn't like a huge commitment. So for me, spiritually, it was a big change and I could really just settle into Sydney with these beautiful gigs that I was doing and uh, sort myself out. And I, so I didn't have any of my own projects for a little while until 1993. So that's quite a, well, 92 actually, and began in 91, which was Atmosphere. called Flying in 1992 and through Tall Poppies actually and that was very very special because it wasn't so much a collaboration it was very much led by myself and co-led to a certain degree with uh, Daryl Pratt who's an incredible vibraphone player percussionist you know he's a classical percussionist but also plays jazz Mm. similar to Tony Gould in a way a very rare individual who covers the classical world and another foot in the jazz world very completely, you know, and so Daryl Pratt is an incredible vibraphone marimba player. And we started that project um, because we were at the con together. He was teaching, still teaching at the conservatory. We'd just get him in, into a room in between lessons, have a have a play, have an improvise, and so many amazing things came out of that. And then I invited um, Carmen Warrington, who, like myself, had been doing meditation for a long time, and we became partners, life partners as well. Mm. And she was... She's from the acting background. So, you know, she's NIDA trained, you know, for two years at NIDA and years ago. Deep meditated, beautiful sounding voice. So we're doing meditation commentaries with <laughs> jazz fusion with Adam Armstrong, who played electric and acoustic bass. So a beautiful group and very unusual, very left of centre. So it wasn't always attracting big audiences, but the people that came to it really incredible experiences. We were having incredible experiences with it. But a lot of my conceptual things that were happening in Pyramid began to take another form in atmosphere, but with, with the spiritual dimension to it, which was what I was looking for all my life. So it was really quite a pivotal band. And then <clears throat> to come further forward to just recently, when I moved back to Melbourne, I hooked up with Everpedes Everpedu, an incredible bass player, a six-string player, but he started as a classical guitarist. So I'm not allowing you much space here. No, 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 no. Is that okay? I will, I will, I will be returning to some of these things. I just wanted to make one point about something I noticed on a YouTube video, mm. which just had uh, Everpedes playing. Yeah. And I was looking at his fingering. He was playing the six-string bass. Yeah. And... It struck me. I thought, I wonder if he's been a classical guitar player because his yeah. fingering looked very much like mm. what I see yeah, on definitely. classical guitarists. Spot on, Morris. And, you know, <clears throat> he grows his nails still, so he has that, rather than using a pick, uh, there's all of that finger work and also nails, mm. which is in classical guitar is uh, part of the sound, or can be. <clears throat> so, yeah, when we hooked up, it was around 2000, actually. 
moved back to Melbourne and I really did want to start improvising with players that could play from scratch with no, not even talking about what we're going to do. It's always been in my heart that that's the core of how I play. I love structured music, but I love the combination of both these extremes in a way. The spectrum from highly arranged music like Pyramid was, you know, mm-hmm. yet with still the improvisation feeling and there's wild improvisation that could happen. Mm. But then there's Brian Brown in my history too, where there were whole sets that were completely improvised and no, not even talking about the title or what we're heading towards, <clears throat> although sometimes we did. So I love the spectrum of what's possible in music. And, and so every and I, every, every piece, um, I'd seen every play before, and I didn't remember, but we played on a Greek song festival, because he's from Cyprus originally. Right. And I think it was around the time, I might have been about 20, so it was years and years ago, and he was playing guitar at that time, and he just remembers the connection that we had. I remember the first connection with every seeing him do what he does was with Virgil Donati's band, and no, nothing against the band or the compositions. I was not really into the the music. I love the the tech, you know the virtuosity of the, the whole band, but the thing that really stayed with me in my heart was every solo in that night when he started to use the pedals and, and electronics and it was heavenly it was mm. like celestial music i thought who is this guy yeah yeah, yeah. i want to play with this guy you know? so it didn't happen at the time that was in melbourne and before i'd left melbourne so years later I, I hooked up with him and said oh do you want to just play let's have a play and this is what hap- happens i think with jazz what's called jazz for me is much bigger is it's much bigger than just the jazz tradition I love and I respect it deeply and I play I mean with Don Burroughs I was in a way learning the deepest part of that tradition by osmosis mm. playing with him and with George Goller Julian Lee was in the band for a while it's just incredible you know the piano player and so in a way I've been so fortunate to always be into improvisation no matter what style so for me jazz is much broader I'd, I'd rather even redefine it for myself i'm an improviser i don't even feel that i'm a jazz player i play jazz i play rock i play funk i play latin but it's always from my own filter and i think we do that anyway if we're born in australia i'm not you know i'm not from chile i'm not from brazil so i'm not going to be playing brazilian rhythms from the absolute core because i never i've not even visited there so it's still my take on indian music or you know even though i've visited india 26 times so far Japan, in fact, if there's an influence, another big influence on me is Japan. I love it. I love the place and I love the people. And there's another whole sensibility there within the soul, if you like, you know, that activates how I play. So there's a, there's not one thing. It's not just the bebop standards. And I love that. But to be honest, I, I couldn't play that for the rest of my life. But. I was going to come to that later, but this yeah, is like, yeah. now's a good opportunity yeah, to sort yeah, of bring right. in this. So over the last couple of weeks, I watched your Drumscapes video, which uh, was, for, for those of you out there who may not know about this, David did a performance back in 2013, I think, mm. at uh, the beautiful Melbourne Recital awesome. Centre, just around the corner from where we are now. Mm. And um, it was basically David with a kit, on stage, and I don't know if you caught the purpose, but uh, the idea behind this concert was for you to use percussion to interpret various sounds in nature, various man-made sounds, and how you use the drum kit and other percussion to interpret that. And late in the concert, you do your take 
on Indian and African mm. percussion, and mm. particularly like while I was watching, I think the electronic drum mm-hmm. that you had set up the with your drum. acoustic kit, yeah. you were using that to replicate the sound of a tabla. It sounded, uh, because I, I have absolutely no knowledge or understanding of Indian music to any extent apart from you know, music that I've heard, but I have no real understanding, have never having played it. But it sounded to my ears that you had the nuance of tablet playing down really, really well. And yet you say, well, it's just your take, your approximation. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. how... Mm-hmm. I wanted to make this a multi-part question. I'll come, sure, I'll come back sure. to the tablet playing in a moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... One thing that I understood from this concert and from your third ear album, which we'll also come to shortly, was that you said to me previously that you'd heard a lot of really wonderful drummers in your time, but they weren't necessarily putting enough of themselves into it. Mm. And I sort of thought, hmm, what does that actually mean? Sure. And then watching this, watching this DVD mm-hmm. and listening to music with third ear, I thought, right, I finally have it. You, what you've sort of already alluded to, technical mastery chops for its own sake doesn't appeal to you. And to mm. be honest with you, it doesn't appeal to me. But then again, I'm a million miles away from technical mastery. Sure. But, no, but, I think most yeah, people but, can, but, it can leave them cold too. But be. listening to what you did on the CD and in that concert, I understood you were really out to say, let's see how we can approximate these sounds or how these sounds make me feel. You know, the kitchen utensils, mm. the sound of running mm. water. Mm. Have, I, have I got that right? Is that, that you're more interested in sound for its own sake rather than mastery of technical chops for its own sake? Well, I've been very fortunate talking about technique is that technique was there from a very young age. I keep developing it and keep honing it, keep refining it. But I do remember that I had the same speed as I have now when I was 15. Now, whether that's fast twitch muscles, you know, like the fast runner, I'm not sure... Um, so there is a beautiful gift which I really deeply respect but I've always felt that technique well maybe in the early days I didn't <laughs> because I was cop this you know check, check this out you know <laughs> check out how fast this pace drum is you know so I did have that youthful arrogance and it served me in the, in the sense that I had to bring that back into a balance because it was definitely not I'm not good enough it was the other side of the coin which is okay I'm the greatest you know and here it is. So there's a lot of ego I had to really look at and keep looking at. And so technique has always been now for many years, especially because of the spiritual path that I just keep going deeply into, is that I realise both practically and spiritually that technique is just the servant. It's not the master. So if technique becomes the master, we are really, really stuck because at some point our body will start to become slower. Because we, you know, the body gets older. Mm. Everyone listening to this now, every second, we're all getting older. You know, so that's a, you know, physically. But what needs to be ageless is the consciousness. You know, that I can use technique or whatever I have at this point to the most powerful intention and impact on people 
which could be just a brush stroke, you know, just that can have the same power as right around the kit. Mm. If it's with really deep intention and people feel it, I think general public feel it more than musicians because for musicians it's a very big challenge to put aside bias and prejudice and um, preference when we're listening to music and other musicians. That's another whole thing we could be talking about. But um, in essence, it's for me, when I'm listening, I really want to feel, is this touching my spirit? And going back to styles, you know, whether it be Indian music, which are all, you know, centuries old. If you think about the ancient cultures, they're all centuries old. Like if we're talking about African music, Indian music, Middle Eastern music, I love all of it. Now, I'm not going to sound authentic, but what I've always felt is to absorb the spirit of what's being played, if that makes sense. Now, there are definite patterns, of course, that allude to, okay, this is sounding like an African bell pattern. Sure. I mean, I have enough knowledge, basic knowledge in all of the what I've heard and what I've picked up. <clears throat> and then you keep studying, whether it be a formal study or you're researching all the time. As a musician, you're absolutely researching every day of your life. I'd say even every moment, you know, I might hear a sound of a scrape of a tire on the side of a road and think, oh, that's interesting. (laughs) You know, it becomes more broad than what we call musical sounds because with percussion, there's what I call the texture and the colour, the timbre of the sound that we're creating or a blend of sounds. And I definitely love pitched things. So I've been involved in Tibetan and Japanese and crystal singing bowls, but pure pitch, as much as I can get them pure pitch rather than in between. I have a few that are sharp or flat of certain notes, but pretty much all the ones I use in performance are dead on. You know, they're absolutely... I've got a bowl that's A440. It's amazing when you... Wow. Yeah. So you can tune... I mean, if the tuning of the orchestra is that, it could be A442, but it's pretty close that you could actually use it to tune an orchestra. And I've used that that uh, singing bowl. It's the A bowl. It's a Tibetan one. It's very special, very pure note when you rub the edge. And I've used it in the two concerto that have been um, written for me. So for me, thank you for mentioning about the Drumscapes DVD. It really was a very special thing to be able to document that mm. because at that place, you know, the recital center of the salon, it's a beautiful sounding space, it's a beautiful visual. We lit my feet. I had a setup where you could see the feet in front, that's where the electronics was, mm. and then built two kits either side of myself, so with double pedals and things. So that usually, uh, one of my solo shows takes about three months to put together of improvising in, again, this thing of color or of, of settings, and then the soundscapes that I was using as my backdrop that was completely timed out for one hour with the silences so that I was playing the pieces according to the the settings I love doing that because you know for a drummer usually we're the team member up the back of the band either looking after everyone which is not just for the drums but you know the the drummer does a lot of that team member uh, and co-leading if that's open you know it's an open situation with the leader of the band then the drums definitely co-lead. There's a lot of energy, a lot of dynamics, a lot of the tempos, a lot of very practical things that come from the drums, if there happens to be drums in the band, that is. So, you know, this whole thing of improvisation for me is taking the spirit of what I'm hearing and now let's really go to another level with it. Let's, Let's bring this alive, you know, that it actually is then an invitation to the listener or to the audience in front of you 
that they're involved too. Moving back to the weekend that we've just returned from, the mm. Wangaratta Jazz Festival, so you were quite the busy fellow, you know, as well as doing your own third ear concert. You were there to judge the 10 mm. finalists at the National Jazz Awards every year. It's a different instrument. This year it was drum kit, yes. and you had to go through the 10 finalists who'd been awarded to come to Wangaratta and then whittle that down to three. The three finalists were uh, Ollie Nelson, Angus Mason, and the eventual winner, uh, Alex Fellian. spoke a couple of weeks ago you were saying I want to see what it is that these musicians will bring of themselves how else did you judge like all the contestants not just the three eventual winners mm. and congratulations mm. to all those yes, all definitely. those uh, drummers it was a beautiful process and it is always tricky because the three drummers myself Dave Goodman, who'd actually been in the competition three times himself. Oh, wow. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Sydney drummer, beautiful drummer. And Hamish Stewart. One of I our, love Hamish Stewart. One of our icons of he, drumming. You know? I've seen him like a few times in recent years, yeah. played with Don Walker. Oh, fantastic. He's been so, uh, yeah, marvellous player. Yeah, and wonderful human beings. You know, the three of us together, we, we know each other. Oh, we've got to know each other so deeply after this weekend. Mm. But we've known each other for a long time on and off and seen each other play and been to each other's gigs and all that sort of thing. What happened was that we individually had to go through 48 applicants and no names. It was just applicants, 37, applicants, you know, whatever. Three tunes each. So I was listening on the same speakers, really listening, even if it was hard to listen to, because, you know, to be honest, some of them were hard to listen to. It was either distorted or not very good playing or the band wasn't great. And you're wanting to discern, oh, is it the band pulling this drummer down or is it the drummer is not really happening? And so, you know, we're all assuming that the technique is pretty good. You know, if they've entered into a competition like this, that pretty much they're playing fairly well already. So technically, most were pretty good. What I started to hear very quickly was generic. Uh, here's another jazz player. I was even starting to think, are they all playing on the same kit or something? It's the same tuning. Yeah. And what I mean by generic, hopefully with respect for this, there's a jazz tradition, you know, very high tuning on the drums and... For me, it's a very thin sound. It's not very resonant. It's not very much bottom end. And I understand why. You know, in the past, you would have had to have space for the, the bass, you know, the acoustic bass to have the low end. You don't want things underneath that. But my history is from rock and roll. It's from the Purple and Led Zeppelin. Right. I love big drum sounds, even if they're being played soft. So we had to, the three of the judges or adjudicators or however you want to call us, you know, we were there as fellow musicians, you know, we were looking at other drummers who were all playing, they're doing, you know, especially the last 10, again, we didn't know the names until we got there or it was announced before. And we've 
having the feeling really these guys for the people that actually went into the applied for this there's the 10 most wonderful young drummers in Australia at present. There may be lots of others that didn't enter for whatever reason. Sure. But from what we know, here's 10 that are just, wow, what an achievement even to be in that list. I truly feel that. Mm. So I've been finalist in, in certain things like the Melbourne Prize, whether... Yeah. Well, I was going to ask if, well, you were growing up, whether there was an equivalent to uh, the Wangaretta National No, Jazz there was nothing like that. But this was, Melbourne Prize was, um, that's another whole story, but to be not only in the finalists, you know, the list of finalists in 2007, that was a big honour. And Paul Grabowski took the first of the music Melbourne Prize and very, mm. des- very deservedly so, incredibly... For me to receive that in 2010, I, I was incredulous. So I, I didn't think that I would receive that prize. So I had an inkling into how it feels to be even in a finals list, that that's a great honour. And then if someone is to what we call win, you know, they're all winners. So I feel they're all winners. But to win the actual prize, of course, it's it, it's a big thing. It's a huge thing. And we all realised that as judges. We thought, okay, this is a big thing. There's a lot of money involved for each of the three places. Mm. But what are we looking at? We had a two-hour coffee session after the first heat, listening to the first five drummers, and really went into where are my biases, what am I listening for? And we all, without betraying any confidence, confidentiality, we all met in the middle, even on that first, you know, two hours after the first heat, sitting in a little booth in a cafe that we weren't being overheard as well, talking Mm. about other drummers. We were very respectful of that process, you know, and so it became very obvious after the two days of the three finals, they lifted above. And now this is not to say again that any of those drummers played uh, badly, but you could tell some were not on their game. They were nervous or there was something going on. They just weren't coming across. But you could feel that, oh, oh I remember this one. I didn't have the name at the time, but now I remember this one on the ta- on the recording. Yeah. Wow, that was a beautiful solo piece, but this one didn't. Today, it didn't happen. It was, you know, it was really rough around the edges or just stopped and nothing happened. You know, so again, without giving anything away because we're not meant to. Sure. Um, it was a very thorough process. And so I was... Did you, did you hear things through Hamish's ears and a little David's bit, ears? A little bit. I mean, we all overlapped so beautifully because we're all... So like, was there something you said, look, I have a problem with this part of yeah. so-and-so's performance? Yeah. And they said, ah, oh, you're not considering that and you're, oh, in that context. Yeah, you know, but we were very like much meeting in the middle with a lot of things we agreed on so much and not just to be agreeing because if there was, you know, something we needed to talk about, of course, we talked that through and said, well, this is another view on it. And, oh, okay, good. Yeah, well, I can, I can take that, yeah. So as human beings and as drummers, we are very broad in our thinking and, and very accepting of that, you know, people are in an unnatural situation, you know, being judged with people with a piece of paper and a pen up the back. And, you know, you can feel it in the audience too that, that they're not just there for performance, they're sometimes barracking for their favourite. And so there's always little controversies around the edges and, and you know, you just got to let that go because you have to trust the process. And I was reluctant to be, I know the other two guys were too, uh, reluctant to be judges for that. Adam Simmons, when he first contacted me, he said, look, it's more about the music and that's why I really want you to do it. Mm. While we've got Hamish and while we've got David, it's not about the technical. It's again about the technical. Yes. You know, because the technical side of things was very high for everyone. 
then it became, well, who's really speaking as an individual? Who is really playing so consistently and interacting with that band, that hardworking band that played with all of the finalists? Right. It was an amazing, amazing band. And isn't this interesting that the three finalists, the band agreed with our decisions as well because that's what they felt as musicians, you know, beyond the drums, that it was really happening for those three people. So whether it be on the day or on another day, it might have been a different situation. Who knows? I can only deal with what you're hearing on that day. Wanting to treat it in deep respect, but also light and easy. Otherwise, you can go a bit crazy with it, you know, in terms of the enormity of what your decision is um, doing for people. Sure. But it, it has to be, and this I'm so glad this happened, that the, the three emerged, as I mentioned before, very, very easily. There was only a little bit of discussion needed about the first place once we got to the very final. Sure, sure. That that's, was tricky too, but again, it became unanimous. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, complete change of direction here. You've already sort of made mention of this. Earlier on this year, a pianist we both love and admire a great deal, Joe Kindama, yeah, had amazing. written a concerto for you. Yeah. for orchestra and drum kit with you in mind. I mean, drums out the front of the orchestra. Besides the yeah. besides the incredible honour that someone would think to do that, how was that experience? Actually, that's, I'll, I'll preclude that. How? I mean, I guess for any composer, they don't play every instrument, so they've got to approximate, like you know, someone with mm. every composer is a mm. pianist. They've mm. got to approximate how a string mm. section is supposed to sound, with a string section arrangement is going to be, but. I can't even begin to imagine what it would be like for a non-drummer to compose so intricately what a drum kit is going to be. I mean, okay, someone like Joe Kendama who's got a foot in, it would seem in the classical world as yeah, well absolutely. as the yeah. jazz world. So the, the jazz world gives him a better understanding of what happens mm. behind a kit. But mm. did he ever go through with you, look, this is my approximation as to what I think you should be doing? Were, were you in any disagreement over no, certain parts of the composition? No, or, or so much. How was, what was his thinking? There's a bit of history here because we've known each other since the beginning. <laughs> Actually, the, the end of what was called Pyramid. I tried to keep Pyramid going and I invited Joe, who was a very young player who hadn't really composed any original, you know, his own pieces yet. And Ren Walters, a fantastic guitarist, to join Roger McLaughlin and Bobby Vinia and myself. Now, it should have been called something else. Now, in hindsight, it should have been a new band. Yep. I tried to keep Pyramid going because it was quite a shock when it finished, you know, and very sudden. Anyway, and I probably was in shock, you know, trauma. But that aside, what happened for Joe was that um, 
I was giving so much energy to him to compose for the group, we were improvising so much. It was an incredible time. And so we had all this history together. We played in so many commercial situations, you know, the jazz situation and recordings, and hadn't played or really been in connection for quite a few years. So it was a coming back together of very special energy, some sort of healing too, because when that second pyramid finished, that was half for Joe as well, you know, yeah. and for Ren and for all of us. So there's a bit of history there. And the other part of the history is that I had a first concerto written in Japan in 2006 through my dear, dear friend Tomo Kali, a percussionist, who was living in Kanazawa in Japan for nine years and timpanist. Anyway, that's a long story, but he was very much the driving force behind that coming together with Japan-Australia ex uh, exchange year. Mm. So there was funding from here, funding from Japan, for a drum kit concerto with Kanazawa Orchestra Ensemble, which is a 40-piece, 40 40-piece 40 orchestra. Mm -hmm. so usually a symphony is 80. And what happened was that that just was, oh, to that point it was a pinnacle in my life, to have a piece written for me by a Tokyo composer and then, okay, I thought it might go. Like, oh, gee, maybe this can be played around the world. We played it in Japan again. We played it here, ABC, recorded live in Iwaki Auditorium. Wow. Iwaki had just passed away, so it became part of the, right. that orchestra came here. There was a really beautiful connection with Japan over many years, and I played with that orchestra in Pops concerts. So that first concerto was, was, <laughs> was a big thing and so exhilarating. And it didn't quite get to where I thought it might be, you know, that it could travel the world and be played at different, <coughs> mainly because it's a 40-piece orchestra piece, so you'd have to write extra parts or double up or whatever. Or Anyway, so for about seven years, this is the history of why it came to Joe to write this, was that Bramwell Tovey, the conductor and uh, wonderful piano player too, conductor, composer, was coming here and he still comes here to work with the Melbourne Symphony. He's a real favourite conductor with audiences too. Anyway, we formed a really great connection because I played with him as conductor and, com and um, piano player too in many, many different situations with the Melbourne Symphony. We did something in Sydney Opera House. Anyway, we started talking and I thought, oh, I'll just ask him. He can only say no. He was really interested in writing a, a drum concert for me, the second one. So it was very serious. Every time we'd, we'd talk, he'd even draw on a piece of paper, oh, look, I'm thinking of setting up the orchestra in a different way, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, for some reason, after about seven years, there was no more talk of it. <laughs> and an email that I sent, I'm, I'm really hoping that it did reach him, because sometimes the emails don't reach, and I got no answer. And I thought, oh, okay, well, this is maybe an indication that it's not going to go further. You know, you get the energy, feeling of an energy not going any further. Sure, sure. I thought, okay, well, maybe he's just too busy. He's a you know chief conductor of Vancouver Orchestra. Mm. He's uh, you know, doing things around the world continuously. Maybe it's just on the back burner. I don't want to wait. So I knew Melbourne Symphony was very interested. So I met with the artistic director and I said, oh, I'd love to do this drum concerto. And it was uh, Ronald Vermeulen at, uh, at that time. He said, oh, yes, we're really interested in this. This really could be quite special. He said, who, who have you got in mind? I said, well, I've got a few people in mind and I named some people. And he said, oh, no, they're already commissioning, you know, they're commissioned by MSO to do other things. And he said, what about Joe Kandama? I said, Joe... That is fantastic. I didn't even don't know why I didn't even think of Joe. That's perfect because he knows me in inside out. Because with great respect to other composers, that we haven't had that much to do with each other. You know, you send CDs, you have long discussions about things, you talk about the plan of the the piece, and, and it can be very close to what you hear in your head. But 
Joe, he came up with an incredible piece. So it became the commission with Joe writing it. And of course for him it was his first symphony. So it's a big thing. It's like mammoth, maybe in the world, I don't know. I mean, because I have to separate myself a little bit from this because yeah. I'm the drummer involved in it. But for all drummers in the world, that is a big first. You know that there are two drum kit concertos that exist where there was no, nothing existing in the repertoire in a classical vein. And they were both written for you. I know. So I have high hopes. And I, you know, the thing about your one's career, you know, I just turned 60 this year, it's never over. No, no, no matter what seems to be happening or not happening, things are around the corner. And I know with this piece, even though it might take longer than Joe and I expect to get a second play, I know it's going to be significant. The next time we play, wherever it's going to be, whether it be Sydney Opera House, whether it be, we've got great contacts with Boston Pops, we've got great con- contact with um, oh, many different things. Anyway. But was, was it recorded the first time? Like did the ABC Yes, record the ABC it? recorded it and did a beautiful job of it. My goodness. There was only miking for the radio part of it. There was no miking in the hall. It was all acoustic. The orchestra played incredibly well. The piece itself is magnificent. It's an absolutely magnificent. It's was this not done jazz. At, it's was not this done at Hamer Hall? Hamer Hall. Oh. Full. Packed house to the last night of the proms. Sir Andrew Davis conducting. I mean, you, Holy you moly. Couldn't get, really? could, couldn't get better, uh, how can you say, presentation than that. It was second on after interval. The, you know, we rehearsed in the rehearsals, even down to the millimetre of where the drums were. Because the drums had to be on, off, on, off the stage couldn't just stay on, which is a big thing. It's a tricky thing. I was in some blissful state because I'd been learning the piece by heart, which I'd never had to do. You know, a 23-minute piece, memorization. I've I've got so much respect for classical soloists now. Mm. I never had entered that world of memorization. You know, sure. It's a big thing. Every time you see a, a, a pianist come on for a piano oh, concerto, everyone else has got the luxury of the sheet music. And yeah. I mean, they, they're allowed to put something up if they want to. But it does; it can detract, you know, and it can have uh, an effect on the performer too, with their the visual sense, you know, reading something. It's okay to have something there as as cues and things, but um, that was a, a level of engagement for me with orchestra, with myself, with the audience, on another level that I hadn't experienced before, and I want to repeat many, many times. Finally, want to connected. touch on third year. Okay. Your yeah. project with with Everpides, um, Everpides, I'm 
not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah, it's a really wonderful thing if you just say every first. So I'll do that. Every Pedis. Every Pedis. Every Pedis. Every Pedis. Every Pedis. Right. Just every is good, like every day. So I want to talk about your yeah. connection with every for, mm. um, for third year. He's a brother. Um, Absolute brother. You, you said to me, I want you to really listen to this. Don't just keep this on in the background. Put the headphones on. Gone through the ovens in the last couple of weeks twice, which oh, fantastic. doesn't sound like a whole lot. No, but, no, it's but, a lot. But, this is a, but I think this is an album I'm going to need a lifetime mm. to really fully absorb. Mm. But just on a superficial level, just taking mm. these first mm. couple of times, mm. I, I'm noticing like the, the sounds that are there. So you, you have very deep bass drums, you have chimes, your, your buckets of water, mm. Uh, mm-hmm. gongs, bells, brushes. I've got to ask because I saw this in the DVD, were there any of the dishwasher pipes? Dishwasher. 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 Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's something that you've kept from the pyramid days, isn't it? Because I remember, oh, yeah. I remember seeing you yeah. did that at the Prince of Wales Hotel. Right, like, right. Wow, that's, that's still in his arsenal. Um, <laughs> I've got many different aspects to this sure, question, but sure. I'll start off with was it all improvised or is there some form of I'll call it organized chaos. Did you mm. sort of say, right, we're going to start this journey from here, mm. we're going to end it here, see where we go. I mean, it's a lot more obvious in, say, you know, traditional bebop jazz. You get the theme, a variation yeah, yeah, on the theme, yeah. the solos, and then return to the theme again. Yeah, this, is, yeah. this music is not like that. It's it's this collage of sounds, it's not like that. But is there anything that you're doing where you sort of say, right, well, we're going to go via this path and whatever we do in between? Or, or is it just all... You play, I'll, I'll react to it, you react to what I'm doing. Okay, and yeah. how, how did it's you do very it? easily explained. In, we're both deep meditators for many years. So I think every must be at least, you know, coming up to 30 years or so. I'm 34 years. Uh, everyday meditation is the foundation of life, you mm-hmm. know. And so foundation of life means the foundation of music too. So rather than being in the past, for me it was too brand new and coke before I'd play, you know, for years and it got stronger and stronger and stronger. So to get into the zone, what's called in the zone or into the state of consciousness that you're really creative, you're very open, deeply listening and completely relaxed, you know, and, and responding, like in any conversation, you know, mm. then we can do that through the mind. And that's that was such a relief to me that I could actually do that. It's... <laughs> Very good for your mind and body, rather than you know the other opposite Inter- intervention with chemicals. <laughs> Could be a way to get into this way of playing, yeah. but it would be sometimes very chaotic. And so, hopefully, you know, when you're listening to thirty, there's no chaos going on. There's absolute layering. There's beauty. It can get dark at times, but dark yes. in the sense of um, a contrast to then come very light again. It's all played extremely softly, and the reason for that is that we still bloom with dynamics, but we're not hammering in anything at all. Right. And the easy way to explain where we're coming from is that well, every and I have played really heavy fusion together, you know, with James Morrison, jazz stuff, standards, you name it, pop and funk things gossamer-like meditation ambient music we've done everything together so all of that can be called upon from the subconscious now it's not a very conscious deliberate decision at any given point we are making decisions of course we're not having no thoughts 
But the easiest way to describe what we do is it's from meditation. So, so we set up. Sorry to interrupt. Just something that you'd said to me when we met up a couple of weeks ago yeah. was you said it comes from meditation, but it is not meditation music. Now, exactly. What does, what does that actually mean? Well, it means that we're in a meditative state. So meditation just means thinking. So the thoughts are slower, they're more, more crystalline, very, very clear, very pure thoughts, not allowing any negativity or... It's even beyond that. You, you get to this feeling, because we sit in meditation for at least 10, 15 minutes before we even play. So if I start with a Tibetan bowl, it's not always the first thing that starts, but that sets the scene for ultimate possibility. Because if there's just one long note, this is you know, coming back to music theory in a way, you start with one long note, it's like, uh, well, all the ancient cultures have this. There's a drone. There's already something set up that's this beautiful carpet on which you write. You know, there'll be a rhythm that might come out of that. There might be a melody. There might be a whole chord structure. But we're not pre-planning necessarily anything. What happens, though, is because Every's played so much, for how many years, I don't know how long he's been playing since a little kid, same for me, and for me it's 50 years of playing. So in my subconscious mind, the way I can see this Try, you know, do my best to explain it. So I can call on anything if I'm in a relaxed state and not over, not overthinking and blocking it. So I'm med- in a meditative state, I can allow the flow of ideas to be very, yeah, it's a fluid thing. So we will get into some area, and then every might change that, and I might be influenced, or I might be somewhere else. So. Yeah, again, to repeat what I just said, rather than it being a chaotic thing, it's really deeply composing together in that moment. And there is even on the second track of that album, which is called Sonicscapes, it was just recording the bungalow at the back of my house, not soundproof, so we could hear sounds from outside and some of it leaks through, but we're playing very softly anyway. There's a bird that interacts with us in time and in tune. And we were looking at each other as it was happening as we were recording, thinking, this is incredible. I don't believe this. Ding, ding. Ding. So, remember that? Part? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. And it actually sounds so much part of what we're doing that it could be another electronic generated sound. We're, you know, and it, this was recorded after the Drumscapes concert, yeah. wasn't it? And you were very much in that sound because I think early on in the concert we hear bird song yeah, as well. And you're sounds, bringing, sounds good, bringing uh, that, recording, yeah. Bringing that into that playing with, your, yeah. your symbol place. So this yeah, is yeah. just... Well, this is actually live. Really, <laughs> really happening in the moment. It's really quite a phenomenal thing. It was a little honey eater, you know, this little black bird, uh, that bird with yellow Orange stripes. Beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. So that project is very dear to both Every and I because that's the most authentic way of playing for us. And it's completely open for every because there's not any chordal player. He can play chords because of all these synthesizers and loops and things and being such an incredible player on the six string bass. We're not wanting to sound like any particular instrument, but he can sound like a cello. I mean, and to listeners, they might think, oh, that's a bit crazy, it's a bit weird. But hopefully, for my ears anyway, it, it does take people on a journey that's really quite filmic. Like film music, but you're not happy. You know, you're not actually looking at a film at the moment. We were thinking a lot about the way we play over the last few years, and it's it's really film music. But wouldn't it be great that someone created a film from that music, the opposite way around? Because usually we have a film and we create music to the film. I've written, I've written a note saying that this sounded to me like it would have worked very well in, say, like a modern noir film or, mm. a, or a, one of the modern slow burn horror films. Are you a fan of cinema? Are you a fan of films like that? Oh, I love science fiction. I'm not into horror, but um, but yeah, there's, there are 
really quite incredible textures that happen between us and sometimes we're not even sure who's doing what, which is an amazing feeling to be playing music and playing sounds and thinking, whoa, how do we get here? This is quite, you know, it surprises us as the players. So there's something, it's almost something bigger going on than the two players. And I know musicians talk a lot about that, but particularly when we're improvising, that can actually be facilitated, that there's a bigger energy going on. It's like the music is playing you. I know that sounds so cosmic and so out of our usual realm of brain thinking, but that's, you know, that's what happens with improvisation. If you're really in the flow, in the zone, be surprised yourself listening back and think, I don't know how that happened. Mm. I don't know, I don't even know if we could reproduce that. <laughs> so every time well, that's the nature, that's the nature of improv, isn't and it? You, you can't reproduce it's it. The it's the spe- yeah, it's the special that. nature of that. And you feel the energy that's never going to happen the same way again. Yep, yep. As we did on the Sunday night at the Wengerino Festival, we had one hour complete, one hour improvisation, a bit of a chat before it to set people up into what, you know, invite them into it. How did the audience take to it? Oh, we had people lining up at the edge of the stage wanting to have a chat about it because they had really special experiences. Mm. Some had had spiritual experiences. Now, our aim is to be in that state ourselves. If that actually transfers and someone has some sort of experience, that's so beautiful. You can't predict it. There were many that came up and maybe some that wanted to have a chat and couldn't, or, you know, had to go to something else. So we were really, really blissful. And I know that's not a word that's used many many times in modern language now, bliss. You know, mm. bliss means like a happiness beyond your senses, you know. Sure. A real happiness and satisfaction of mind. And so that project is definitely about that. So what's next for you? <laughs> <laughs> what today? <laughs> We've been talking about living in the moment, and, yeah. and there I say, right. What, what's your next? Plan? Well, I've been supporting my uh, some of my students with their recitals and just being there rather than marking or anything. I just I'm not getting paid for it. I just want to support them and be there for them and fucking give them feedback and encouragement. So it's been really great today. And then I'm up to the mountains to help mix a, an album that I'm part of with uh, Eric Tucheri. She's a fantastic flute player. She studied at the BCA and, and asked me to come and play on her album. Does, does that happen often where BCA students let it go and record and yeah. Res- yeah. ask lecturers sure. to, to be supportive? Yeah, because what I realise, you know, with teaching is that, especially as the, some of the players are really getting on in their development, is that they're my peers. You know, I, I, the only difference between me and, and a student, so-called student, is experience. And they're fast getting the experience, so, you know, it's, it's always welcome if they want to invite another professional into their project. Why not, you know? Or if I can invite them, which I want to do with some of the students that I've been playing with recently. I found some really, really special players. And let's see how, what form that takes. I mean, in January, I've got all the Wednesdays in January at Jazz Lab, so I'm going to put on different projects. Oh, magnificent. Yeah. I love that room. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful room. I haven't played there yet, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm presenting a lot of different... 30 will be the last one or the last Wednesday. There are five Wednesdays, so we're missing the first one. I think it starts on the 9th. It's uh, 9th, 16th, 23, 30. All the Wednesdays to the end of January. Yeah, and I'm going to feature some young players in the first concert, which will be very wonderful to play that role that I've seen others play. Playing, mm, like sure. with Mike Knock and different yes. people bringing younger players into their projects. And I was really reflecting on the way here about that and thinking, gee, I never would have thought that I'm playing this role now of being mentor. We're, we're appropriate because it's not always predictable either where that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it is still teacher student and it doesn't 
go beyond that. But then other times there's a real friendship and, and rapport, you know, that develops and you, you can really uh, gently play a part, sometimes from a, even from a distance, yeah. of our own encouragement and helping people on their way. And music is the greatest thing for, I would say, in, in terms of human endeavours, to bring people together, but also to nurture each other and support each other and, sure. and really care, care for humanity, the humanity that exists in music. All right, well, David, I was expecting 15 minutes and we've been speaking now for over an hour, so I'm so grateful. <laughs> Thank you so very, Thank very you. much Thank for, you your for your time. Oh, pleasure. Great pleasure. We'll go out to a break and then I'll be back to talk about what's happening on the next episode of Love That Album. Again, my huge thanks to drummer Anthony Short, guitarists Alex Stewart and Ben Hauptman, and finally to drummer David Jones for their very, very generous time in talking to us on the podcast. I sincerely hope that you find some way to go out and search out their music, be it through CDs or records or even through Spotify, any way that you can, or on YouTube. Their music is so wonderful, and I hope that you got something out of those conversations. I know that it was purely a joy for me to be able to speak to them all and find out about the creative process from all of them. So thus ends episode 118 of Love That Album. This was very much a last minute sort of decision to be able to put this together. I knew I was going down to Wangaratta Festival of Jazz and Blues anyway, but it was pretty much in the last couple of weeks that I decided that I was going to actually do those interviews. So now to press on to episode 119, which I've been promising for some time. And that's going to be a discussion about the XTC album English Settlement. My two special guests for that conversation, returning guest Shane Pacey 
and first-time guest on the program, Jeff Perlman. Both are guitarists, so it'll be interesting to get their perspective on Andy Partridge's guitar technique. He is a superb guitar player, and it'll be interesting to get their perspective on the songwriting and the arrangement, but also on Andy Partridge's guitar work. So that'll be uh, episode 119 later on in the month. So two episodes of the main Love That Album. Long-time listeners will know that Eric Peterson, Eric Reanimator, has not been on the show for a few months. He's been focusing on some things that required his attention. So I wish you all the best, Eric. And he'll be back to do his regular segment for the main show and his compilation edition shows in January of 2019. Although we're sort of talking about him coming to do the end-of-year program where we talk about our favorite first-time listens of the year. So he may be on the show in December of 2018, but that's purely up to uh, him and his timing requirements. That pretty much covers it for uh, Love That Album episode 118. Please join the Facebook group. Please write to me and tell me what your favorite first-time listens have been for this year. Post in the group, send me an email, whatever it is that you see fit. Just do some communication. I really love talking to people about music, as you no doubt well know. So until later on in this month when we talk about XTC's English Settlement, all the best. Listen to some great music, watch some great films, read some great books, and just generally be nice to each other. The world needs it more than ever. Okay, speak to you soon. Cheers. the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.